Jewish audio on Kabbalah.org. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, the laws of Malve, Vilove, lending and borrowing. And as we talked earlier, this section is a hefty section. It has 27 chapters. We studied the first three chapters, which are the building blocks of the laws of lending and borrowing. The Rambam established the basic ABCs. For the next about seven chapters, he goes into the laws of the ins and outs of the prohibition of charging and paying interest, one fellow Jew to his fellow, one Jew to another. There's actually a large debate whether the prohibition of charging and paying interest between one Jew and another is a rational law, part of the monetary system of Torah, which it appears, because the Rambam includes it in this section, it appears the Rambam favors that view, and I believe that is consistent with what I have shared earlier and many times, which I heard repeatedly from my father of blessed memory, that the idea of charging and paying interest is a very normal act. That's what makes the world go round. In order for me to survive, my money has to make money. There's no two ways about it. And therefore, that is normal. The Torah expects that I treat every single fellow Jew like a brother. It's not nice to charge your brother interest. Your brother's your brother. He's hurting, give him an interest free loan. Every Jew is a brother, which explains why we may and should charge interest to non-brothers, which means to people who are not our brothers and sisters in the Jewish community, because that's the norm in the world. Whereas Jew to Jew, we are family. Therefore, that explains that rationally and logically, it's not correct to charge interest to one's fellow Jew because he's a brother. There is another approach, and that is the approach of many other halachic codifiers, and that is that it's rational to charge interest. Except that the Torah decrees, a chok, a law without reason, do not charge or pay interest. Why? There is no why when it comes to laws without reason. That's another view, which perhaps it does not seem that the Rambam favors. Now let's get into this section, chapter 4, halacha 1. The Torah uses various expressions to describe interest. One is neshech, one is marbis. The word neshech literally means the bite. Interest bites you. Marbis comes from the word ribit. Extra. So the word neshech, the prohibition of neshech, interest meaning the bite, marbis interest meaning the many, it's one idea. Shenemar, as it says, eskaspecha leisitin leibin neshech, do not give your money to him, who's him? Your fellow Jew with neshech, or be marbis leisitin ochlecha, and with marbis, do not put forth your food. You don't give somebody so many pounds of food and expect so many more pounds in return, that's marbis. Well, later he says neshech, kesef, neshech ochel, neshech koldover asher yishoch, it means the bite of money, the bite of food. The bite from any substance which will accrue, because interest takes the bite, whether it's food or value or what have you. When you borrow one and you have to pay back ten, it's a problem. And it doesn't take too long for you to have to pay back ten. Ask anybody who's in credit card debt, they'll tell you. Why is it called neshech? Because it bites. Because it torments one's fellow and eats his flesh. And again, as I explained earlier, and we went into this in great detail earlier, there is a setting where our sages ordained a very complex law called heter isker, called a permissible venue of paying and charging interest with an investment. And that's a whole system. We did learn and we will learn. But here we're not talking about an investment. Here we're talking about a poor Jew who needs money and you're charging him interest. It's not the investment route established by our sages when the world became more financial, finance-oriented and less agriculture-oriented, so they had to set up systems of investment. Here we're simply talking about survival loans rather than investments. Back to the idea of Neshech and Marbis and the double expression. Why does the Torah split into two expressions of Neshech and Marbis? To show two negative mitzvahs here. Now, the prohibition refers, the prohibition is directed to all parties involved. Just as Lahalvis, just as it is forbidden to make a loan bearing interest, an interest-bearing loan, it's also forbidden to borrow an interest-bearing loan, which means the prohibition is not only to the lender, it is to the borrower as well. As it says, it says, do not translate it as offer interest to your brother. From tradition we learn that this is actually going to the borrower. Meaning don't be bitten by your brother. It is also prohibited to be a middleman, an agent, between the borrower and the lender. Today you have people who are agents, they arrange loans. It's forbidden to be an agent between one Jew and another to borrow or lend money, bearing interest. If anybody was a guarantor, a safer, anybody was a document preparer, called a scribe, we're going to send this to our document department. They'll take a week and we'll get back to you with a lot of words you want to know. Anyway, a big name or a witness. Any association, that transgresses a negative commandment, as it says, don't place the bite upon him. This is an admonition. Even to the witnesses. And to the guarantor. And to the scribe. From here we learn 
that if somebody makes a loan, which is interest-bearing, to his fellow Jew who needs money, not an investment, but a loan, and he transgresses six negative commandments, one is, do not be like one who puts the bite on his kaspecha, another verse, your money you should not give him with interest to the marbis, another verse, and with interest do not give your food, don't take from him, another verse, you shall not place neshech upon him, finally, do not put a stumbling block before a blind man, this fellow is blind, he obviously is blinded by the fact that the Torah doesn't want this to happen, he's going to make it happen anyway, you're not allowed to help him. So these are the six prohibitions a lender violates. The borrower violates too. Do not bite your brother, which means do not allow yourself to be bitten by your brother. And don't put a stumbling block before a blind man. It appears that the lender here is blind. The borrower is not allowed to help him transgress. Or the guarantor, the and the witnesses. Okay, it's about anyone else associated with this. And Abraham Ella, their transgression is only one. Do not place the bite on him. Anyone who was a middleman or an agent between them. He helped one of them or guided him. Also falls into the transgression of putting a stumbling block before a blind man. Even though, as just mentioned, the lender and the borrower transgress all of the above negative commandments. As a rule, when we transgress a negative commandment that entails action, there can be the application of lashes during the time that the court system functions with warnings and witnesses. In this case, in Lake and Olive, there is no lashes applicable. Why? As we've learned many times, whenever there's a remedy available, there is no lashes. Here, the remedy is because the interest could be returned. It should be returned. So if you can return it, there's no reason for lashes. You just return it. Shekol Hamal Veberibis here, the Rambam establishes the rule, anyone who lends money. Interest bearing in Haisaribis Ksutsa, if it was set money, which means they established an interest rate. I'm giving you so much, I'm giving you 10 pounds of potatoes, you're going to pay me back 11 pounds. That's established. Shehi Asura, I mean, I'll tell you that is forbidden by Torah law when there is a rate involved. Being that it is forbidden for one Jew to do that to another Jew, then the borrower can actually take the lender to court, and the court can force the lender to return the interest. We forcibly extract the interest paid from the Paid by the borrower, we extract it from the lender. We return it to the borrower. However, here's an interesting law. If the borrower, if the lender died, if the lender died, we do not forcibly remove that interest from the estate, from the children of the lender. Here, like with many other laws, there is a debate. There is a hakira question. Is this a prohibition that pertains to the object or to the person? Is the object, is the act prohibited or is the person prohibited from doing the act? And because we see that the obligation to return interest does not pass on to the estate of the lender. It shows that the person is prohibited to do it and is obligated to return it and the person died. So the estate does not have that obligation. The children do not have that obligation because it's not the item, it's the person who is prohibited. And that's a complex debate I'm just briefly making mention of. What if the father of children left them a lot of interest? That's how he made his living. I guess we can call he was a loan shark. That's how he made his living. Even though the children are well aware that the money they inherited is interest, which by Torah law is forbidden if it was charged from a Jew to another Jew, the children do not have the obligation to return it. Because again, it's not the act, it's the person's responsibility. The father died. However, if he left a cow, and it was very clear that this cow, named Elsie the cow, that was the name of the cow when I was a kid, Elsie, this cow was obtained through interest, this cow was an interest cow, the talis or garment, which was an interest payment, anything specific, where anyone looks at it, they can see, ah ah and everyone will be talking about the father and his misdeeds. And in that case, the children should return it. Because you don't need anybody talking about the sin of the father. Because of the honor that should be given to the father. When does this apply? When does this apply? If the father repented, if the father did shuva, he realized the wrong that he did. He regretted his deeds. He speaks and he did not get a chance to return certain items that he should have returned before he died. But if he died, a very proud loan shark, if he did not repent at all, he didn't regret. Again, being that is something that is rather a prohibition for the person. Not for the object. And if he didn't care about his own honor, then why should the children be concerned with his reputation? Even something that is recognizable and everyone will say, this is interest that he collected. We don't have to restore it because the respect that's given from children to a father is more limited when the father dies. If the father didn't care about this mitzvah, why should the children care about it? Now comes a fantastic law, which we have talked about in other places, which we will talk about. Very interesting law. What if there is someone who is a robber? That's what he does for a living. He robs people. Got to make a living. And people who lend Money 
interest-bearing loans. That's what they do. And they come one day and they say, hey, we were robbers. We were interest-bearing lenders. We lent to our fellow needy Jews with interest. We feel terrible. Please take your money back. We robbed you. Please take your money back. We don't take money from them if at all possible. If at all possible, we say to the robber who came and says, listen, 10 years ago I robbed you. Here's the money. Listen, I charge you. Here's the money. We say, never mind. It's, it's, it's all in the past. Keep it. Why do we do that? Because we want to open the door for repentance. If we're going to accept the money back from them, by the time they start giving back money, in a few hours they'll be exhausted and bankrupt. The Gemara refers to a Babakama, page 94, refers to a person who lent money at interest. Suddenly he felt bad and he wanted to repent. Duchuba and his wife saw him contemplating this. She says, if you start returning what you've taken, you won't even have a shirt left. Everything you have is from interest. He said, never mind, you're right. So this is called takonat shavim. Our sages ordained and asked people to voluntarily refuse to receive the stolen items back or the interest back in order to open the door for this fellow to truly repent. So if he sees as a forgiving community, then he will repent. To open up a door, a pathway for repentance. And if anybody says, I don't care about his repentance, he stole money from me, I know it was a long time ago, he charged me interest, I'm taking it, leave me alone. Then our sages did not have nachas, did not look favorably upon this person. And our sages say, and the Rambam and Hagos Maimon says, and the Shekhanorah says, that this rabbinic ordinance only applies if that's what the guy did for a living. He was a robber. If that's what the guy did for a living. If he was a loan shark. But if he just did it occasionally and he had another way to make a living, then we can accept it back because it's not going to be too taxing upon him to return the items he took. If the robbery object is still there, and the interest is a specific object, and it itself is there, our sages say we can receive it from those who want to repent. Now, what about a document that talks about interest? A document. In which is written, the idea of interest. Interest is forbidden from one Jew to another by Torah law. There's a document that talks about interest. Whether set interest, X amount of percent a year, or a month, or a day. Or rabbinic interest. What's rabbinic interest? I'll lend you money. I won't charge you anything. And by the way, if you want to, you can come live in my house. In my house, I have an apartment that's empty. That's called rabbinically prohibited interest. It's roundabout. It's not direct. Okay, now the question is, is this document kosher? Can a document that specifies interest be used to collect principal? The answer is yes, you can collect the principal, but you cannot collect the interest. What if somebody jumped the gun and collected it all? The guy can go to court and have the courts take back the set or Torah interest. But in Hebrew means dust. Just as there's soil, which is dirt, which is earth, it's substantial. And then there's dust, which is earth, but you can't really put your hand on it because it's dust. So also there is Torah prohibition, which is solid, and then there's rabbinic prohibition, which is like dust compared to soil. That's the expression that is used to describe rabbinic pro- prohibited interest. Avak ribit. Should not be collected from the lender to the borrower. And should not be returned or expropriated by the court from the lender to the borrower. This is a much more lenient form of interest. This is a rabbinic violation. It's a secondary violation rather than a primary. Again, I gave the example of the guy who had the extra apartment or what have you. It's not obvious interest. It's roundabout interest. Now he lays down the law. Zion Anybody who writes a document of interest. And I just want to establish again. We did talk about and we will talk about something that is quite common today. It's called heter iska the document which permits the payment of interest on an investment. It's a complex document. It has to be done properly. The principle is, I'm not lending you money, I'm investing money. And that is a rabbinic ordinance in order to allow the world of business to continue. There's an adorable story they tell. Yossel the gunner, Yossel the thief in the town, comes down the chimney in the rabbi's house. Because that's what thieves do, they come down the chimney. And he, the rabbi says, what are you doing here? It's 2 o'clock in the morning. He says, Rabbi, I found your watch. It's a gold watch. I'm coming to return your watch. The rabbi says, you're returning a watch? I thought you were a thief. He says, well, I'm a Jew. I'm doing a mitzvah. They're returning a lost item. Anyway, the next day, the rabbi is looking for his wallet and he can't find it. So he calls Yossel. He says, Yossel, when you were here doing a mitzvah, returning my watch, did you by any chance pickpocket me and take my wallet? He says, Rabbi, I would never lie to you. You're a man of God. Yes, I did. He says, but you were here doing a mitzvah, returning my watch. Why are you pickpocketing my wallet? He says, Rabbi, a mitzvah is a mitzvah and business is business. <laughs> you know, you got to learn from Yossel de Ghana. So, you know, anyway, if there is anyone who writes a document, an interest-bearing loan document, that is a case of it is if he writes, or may it and testifies all of, brings witnesses to testify upon him, aid in Shekhar Vashem, the case will deny the name of the God of Israel, because the God of Israel says, do not charge interest, do not pay interest to your fellow Jew, from your fellow Jew. So also anybody who lends or borrows, I'm sorry, anyone who borrows and lends with interest, they non, they not small, privately, 
He says, I'm not going to make a big deal of it. We don't have witnesses. We'll do it between us. They denied the God of Israel. The They denied the great miracle of the Exodus of Egypt. Because the verse connects both these objects. Do not give him your money with an interest bearing bite. I am God your God. Along the same lines, it is forbidden for a father to make interest bearing loans or actually borrowings from the member of his household. Here the scenario is, you want to give your son money, but you don't want to spoil him. So you're going to borrow money that he has, and you're going to pay him interest. It's not really interest. You're giving him a gift. You're just calling it interest so he feels good about it. That is a problem. Even though the father is not concerned, what's the truth? The truth is it's a gift. He's not paying interest to his son. He's giving his son a gift, but he wants his son to feel good. And he's also, it's forbidden. Why is it forbidden? We just explained it's a gift. You're allowed to give your son a gift. Because the son is going to become accustomed to charging interest and to paying interest. He's going to say, my father was a God-fearing man, and he did this. It must be okay. Therefore, that's not a good way to give your son a gift. Yes, what about Torah scholars? Torah scholars are scholars. They know the many commandments associated with the prohibition of lending and borrowing with interest. Can a Torah scholar do it between one Torah scholar and the other? What do you mean, can they do it? Of course not. What would be even the logic to argue they could? Because a gift is permissible. There's one Torah scholar who says the other Torah scholar needs money, he's going to give him money. It's not interest, it's a gift. Which technically you can argue is permissible. Even that is a problem. But sometimes permissible, and here the Rambam deals with that issue. Talmidei Chachavim, Torah scholars, Shehil Buzazel, borrowed, lent one another. He borrowed $10 and he gave him 11 Returned 11 it could be argued that this is permissible because every Torah scholar knows the prohibition of charging and paying interest. God forbid it's not interest. This is a known fact, that it was a gift, it was not interest. Because as Torah scholars, they know the severity of this. And again, the question is whether it should be done and what people will see it, and so on and so forth. Now comes the story if somebody makes a loan to another, and the borrower finds that there's more than he agreed he would give him. The borrower returned the loan on the The lender found there was more. He borrowed or lent $100 and found $105. If it could be logically argued that there was a calculation error, you know, money has to be counted. Money sticks to each other. There are various mistakes that can happen when you count money. If you can logically argue that this was an error, it should be returned. But if it's not logical to say it was an error, then then we should argue something else. And he's giving him a gift. And gifts are technically permissible. Or there's a better idea. Some time back, he robbed him. He took something that belonged to him. He was embarrassed to admit it. Now, he's feeling guilty, so he puts it in whatever he's giving him, because he wouldn't notice. Or somebody came to the borrower or lender and said, listen, you're doing a transaction with someone, do me a favor. I don't want to talk about it, but give him these $5, or this $50, or this $5,000. So, that could also be a possibility. When we talk about what is logical to error here, what would be logical be echad? One, because when you're counting nine, you can count eight or ten. Or bishnayim, or two, because some people count by twos, so there's an extra two. Five, you count by five, five, five. Perhaps he counted five, five, ten, ten. If he found more than the five or more than the ten, one by one, maybe the single coins or the single bills that he would put with the groups of five and ten became mixed up. And what he's talking about here is this, that it was a culture that when somebody would have to count out a, a stack of coins, so he makes a stack of ten. And in order to know that he established this as ten, he puts a single coin next to it. This means this is done. Makes another stack of ten. Puts a single coin next to it, meaning count it. And then the single coin got mixed up with the ten. That's why one of ten or one of five is a logical error. Here comes another problem which we're not that aware of. Because today, a dollar is a dollar. A quarter is a quarter. A dime is a dime. A nickel is a nickel. A penny is a penny. And we don't weigh it. But once upon a time, the coin was the weight of the material. And that fluctuated. So it was known that a dollar is silver and it weighs so much. Somebody makes a loan. He makes a loan on a particular currency coin. He extends a loan on a particular currency coin. Or, similar scenario, he writes a ketubah to his wife. What is a ketubah? The ketubah is a marriage contract. If I die, says the husband, or if I divorce you, you're going to get a chunk of money. It's called marriage insurance. Using a particular coin, he says a thousand of this currency. And he enumerates the weight of the particular coin, which is all good. So what's the problem? The problem is, the government went and changed the rules. The government said from now on, this is not going to weigh this, it's going to weigh this. 
So they either increased the value of the coin or they decreased the value of the coin, depending upon what they did. It was a government action. So the result is, in if, for example, they added to the weight of the coin, and produce would become cheaper because of that, he has to be, subtract the amount that was added. Even a little bit. But if the produce did not fall, he does not have to reduce, subtract. He just switches it to whatever currency there is then. When does the supply? If it's up to a fifth that was added to a value, for example, it used to weigh four. From now on, they said it has to weigh five, which means it's greater value. But if they added more than a fifth, he has to deduct all of the addition. Even though produce did not fall in price because of that. The same thing applies to a loan when a coin was decreased. So one has to be cautious. What if somebody makes a loan according to a particular coinage? He says, this currency, I have to pay back. And if so, one day the government says, no more, that coin is out of circulation, it's worthless. What do you do? If you can spend it somewhere else, if you're in America and you can spend it in Canada, you can get to that country, fine. He returns the same coin, even though that coin has been disqualified for usage here, let him go to the other country. Go spend it there. But if there's no access there, no possibility, then the obligation switches to the current currency coin. He has to give him the coin that is expended at that time in that place. The same applies in Iksuba. Now comes a big question. We know that interest is forbidden. We know that one should not charge or pay or associate with interest. But the question is, can it be forgiven? And some scholars ruled that the borrower who forgave the lender the interest which he took from him. He says, I know interest is forbidden. I forgive you. Or that you will take. Some argue, some halachic codifiers argue. Even though a symbolic act of acquisition was made, that he did forgive. Or it's not interest, it's a gift. Some argue in halacha, in law, forgiveness doesn't help. It's a Torah prohibition. What's their argument? Their argument is the very definition of interest is I don't mind. If I'm paying interest, I don't mind. So therefore you can't say, oh, I forgive you. In that case, interest is permissible. You might forgive, we say to the borrower, but the Torah does not forgive. The Torah does not waive this. The Torah prohibited this waiving. Therefore, they argue, these halachic codifiers argue that that forgiveness and waiving will not help when it comes to interest. Even what we call avak ribis, even the dust of ribis, even rabbinic type interest. That is what many halachic codifiers rule, said the Rambam. Now the Rambam says, however, it appears to me that this is not correct. I don't agree with it, said the Rambam. Being that we tell the lender to return it, the yoda hamalva, and the lender knows also that he did something which is forbidden. And he should take it. Nevertheless, said the Rambam, I argue that if he wants to forgive, if the borrower says, I forgive you, he can forgive. We, in fact, said the Rambam, we just learned this. We learned that our rabbis instituted an ordinance telling people not to accept interest back from people who want to repent. That means you can't forgive. Like one can forgive a stolen object. Guy comes and says, listen, I'm, I'm repenting. It's repentance month. Please take back. I robbed your grand piano here. I'm giving it back to you. He said, never mind. Keep it. We learned the same with interest before. And specifically, our sages argued, we just learned it, that robbers, and people who are regular, Loan sharks, who wanted to return it because they're doing shuvah, they're repenting. And there's a rabbinic ordinance that says better you should not accept it because we want to encourage them to change their evil ways. Miklau, that's the best proof, says the Rambam. That waving and forgiving this interest does help. So here we have an interesting discussion which the Rambam quotes in the name of some Gaonim and he says, I disagree. Now it appears that the Rambam would not disagree if it has not yet been paid because that would really be a violation of the laws of interest. And here, the concluding paragraph of this chapter is a different subject altogether which in fact is discussed in greater detail in the laws of inheritance because it's talking about orphans. Let me give you the picture here. A father passed away. May Hashem prevent such things from happening. Left young orphans. Left them his estate. Now they're too young to be able to know what to do with the money. So we have to see to it, we, the courts, the community, that the money is preserved. And that no people who are the opposite of righteous should report these orphans. You know, they are very susceptible. Uh, they're sitting ducks. Very moral people. 
Yet at the same time, it's not going to help if the money left by the father sits under a mattress for 10 years. I guess inflation. Not going to help. Money needs to make money. So what do you do? Interest is a problem. That's the subject matter. The possession of orphans. The courts, the community, the courts may assign them to a trustworthy person. You have somebody who has an excellent reputation in the community. They've been around for many, many years, and they're wealthy, and they're respected, and they're honest as the day is long. They have many good properties, real estate. And it is most logical to argue, it is probable to say that this money belonging to the orphans invested with this guy is going to make money and not lose money. I mean, obviously nobody knows what tomorrow's going to bring. The smartest, wealthiest guys can lose money. Does anybody have any idea how much money Madoff made off with? But still, you do the best you can. So that's what we should do. We should find a guy who is extremely wealthy, is very loaded with real estate, has an excellent reputation, take the money of the estate of the orphans, invest it with him. Ketzad, what do we do? So, being that he says he has good properties, what the Rambam is suggesting is that we also take his property as security for the orphans. So the orphans now have their investment secured with real estate. They say to him, listen, Mr. Rich Guy, who has a wonderful reputation, you want to do a mitzvah? Here's a mitzvah. You do business with these orphans' money. In Yesham, Rebachit, there's a prophet. Ten Mohem, give the orphans chalk on a portion. You know, Rebach of the prophet. It could be, say, our sages, half. could be a third, could be a quarter. It's irrelevant. Because the businessman has to make money too. He's a businessman. But he should give the orphans a portion. However, and this is the catch, if Yeshom helps it, if there's a loss, we tell the wealthy, reputable man with the real estate, as a mitzvah, you bear the loss. We don't want the orphans bearing the loss. Now, can a normal person do this? Of course not. This is a rabbinic violation of the laws of interest. You can't say, if I make money, I make money. And if I lose money, I don't lose money. We learned that much earlier. We learned a lot of these laws earlier. That doesn't work. Because in order not to be liable for the violation of interest, you have to be able to make and lose. So how come here we say it's okay? Because rabbinic prohibition of interest is, as we just said, rabbinic. Our sages did not issue this rabbinic ban in the case of the estate of orphans because we want to be extra benevolent to orphans so we allow this wonderful, charitable, reputable man to make this guarantee even though it violates the spirit of the prohibition of interest and certainly the rabbinic ordinance end of chapter 4. Rambam, Mishneh Torah, Hilchais, the laws of Malve. Ve'lobe, lenders and borrowers, Peirik Hamishi, chapter 5. We learned that Hashem decreed that within the Jewish community there should not be any interest Lending and borrowing. If someone needs money, you give them the loan interest-free. And we're learning the many complex laws about this. And primarily the explanation I prefer is that it is normal to charge interest. It is normal to pay interest. However, every Jew is a brother. Every Jew is a sister. You don't charge interest to your brother and sister. Be a mensch. And that is the beautiful law of the prohibition of paying and charging interest. Therefore, it stands to reason that Aleph, in Peter Hamishi, chapter 5, an idolater, or others will say a non-Jew, or a stranger settler. What is a stranger settler? He's not Jewish. He accepted the seven Noahide laws. He doesn't worship idols. But he doesn't keep mitzvahs. He's not a Jew. From them, it's normal to borrow and pay interest. Or Malvin and to lend them some believers. Because that's the norm. Shenemar, as it says, You shall not put the bite. We learned that one of the expressions describing interest is sashich because interest bites you. As I've said many times in this series, speak to people who are in credit card debt. They'll tell you how they've been bitten. This is something that's forbidden to your brother. But to the rest of the world, it is permissible. Because that's the way of the world. Your money has to make money. In fact, it is, says the Rambam, according to some opinions, and the Rambam accepts this opinion, this opinion, when you have an idolater, it's a mitzvah to collect interest from him. He's not your brother. To the stranger, you may or shall take interest. We learn from tradition, not only may it be done, it should be done. This is the way of the world. It is a positive commandment. That's what makes the world go round. It's a form of investment, which only to a brother may not be done. This is the Torah law. So by Torah law, one may lend money, borrow money with interest when it comes to idolaters. Now our sages say, just as there are other mitzvahs which were ordained in order to minimize fraternity 
between the Jewish people and idolaters. Our sages forbade that a Jew should even make loans to even an idolater with a set interest rate. Only the minimum if somebody needs to earn a living and they have an opportunity. Okay, but don't make a habit out of it. Why is that? This decree was made. We're concerned that the Jew will learn from the deeds of the idolater because he'll have opportunity to lend money to him. And before you know it, he'll become his best client and they'll hang out together and they'll go to clubs together and they'll end up going to the idolatrous church together. It's not a good thing. Therefore, our sages said, minimize the fraternization. Because therefore, this law applies to lending money to an idolater. We're not that worried about borrowing money. Why? It is permissible to borrow money. Interest-bearing loans. Why? Because when you borrow money from someone, you don't hang out with them. <laughs> when you borrow money from someone, you run away from them. Because he's running from him. And he doesn't hang out. You don't hang out with the person you borrow money from. Because he's going to want the money back. Now he says, what about a Torah scholar? We're not really going to suspect that a bona fide, genuine Torah scholar is going to learn from the deeds of an idolater. He may make loans to an idolater, charging interest, even to make profit, not only the minimum necessary to make a living, but even as a venture. That is literal, hardcore interest. But any quote-unquote dust of interest, we learned about this earlier, rabbinic decrees against secondary setups of interest. With an idolater, is permissible to all. The example we gave earlier is if a loan is made and a favor is done by the borrower to the lender. Now the plot thickens. A Jew borrows money from an idolater, an interest-bearing loan, which is fine. And the Jew is on the way to return the loan. Thank God. He's able to pay back this interest-bearing loan. A fellow Jew meets him on the way. The Yomalayan says to him, listen to me. Why are you going to give the money back? To Noamli, give me the money. And I'll pay you. Just like you pay the idolater. So I'll pay it to you. Don't worry about it. This is a classical example of forbidden interest rate set at a particular interest loan set at a particular rate. Because the fact that the Jew borrowed it from the idolater does not mean that the Jew can borrow it from the Jew who borrowed it from the idolater. Even if the Jew who borrowed originally from the idolater takes the new Jew, stands him in front of the idolater and he says, hey, let's make a deal. I'm ready to pay you back, but he wants to take the loan instead. That's also a problem because the Jew is in the middle of this interest-bearing loan to another Jew. So the only way it would be permissible is if the idolater takes his money back and gives it to another Jew. An idolater who borrows money from a Jew in interest. We said we're allowed to do that. An idolater is allowed to borrow money from a Jew and pay an interest. The scenario here is he wants to return him. He wants to pay back the money. The idolater is ready to pay back the money to the Jew. But so another Jew finds him. The Yomalayan says to him, Why are you going to repay the money to the Jew? To normally give me the money instead as a loan, as an interest-bearing loan. I will pay you, whatever you pay the Jew. So the new Jew will pay the idolater interest, and the idolater will pay the old Jew interest. That's not a problem. That is permissible, because the interest activity is going from Jew to non-Jew, from non-Jew to Jew. However, if they all stood together and had a conference, and they said, listen, new arrangement, even though the idolater gave the Jew the loan, being that it was with the awareness of the original Jew, then this would be considered set and forbidden interest. Moving right along, hey, five, also Israel, it is clearly forbidden for a Jew to give his money to an idolater, in order that the idolater will take the Jew's money and lend it to another Jew. Because then you're just creating a middleman. It's a sham. The fact of the matter is that a Jew is lending money with interest to another Jew. An idolater that made a loan to a Jew. Interest bearing. What's wrong with that? It is forbidden for another Jew to be a guarantor. Why? And there are all kinds of guarantors. Because in the law of the idolaters, that they are allowed to, in fact they do, go to the guarantor first. Nimsa. So therefore, what's going to happen is, the guarantor, is going to demand it from the Jew, which the guarantor has to pay the idolater. Because therefore, in the scenario where the idolater accepts that he will not put the demand to the guarantor first, this might be permissible. Law of six. A Jew borrows money from an idolater with interest. Let's 
set up the scenario. A Jew borrows $1,000 from an idolater for 10% interest. Then, after the deal is done, Uskrop on all of the Milva, he says, okay, so to conclude, you now owe me $1,100 because the original loan was 1000 the interest is 100 the time is up, so you owe me now 1100 Agreed? Agreed. Then this non-Jew converted and became a Jew. Now the question is, is this interest or is this a loan? Is it an $1,100 loan? Because remember, they converted it to an $1,100 loan. Or is it 1000 plus interest? If the reckoning, the calculation was made before the conversion moment, then it has been established as an $1,100 loan. You can collect the principal and interest because there is no interest. It's an $1,100 loan. But if the calculation and reckoning was made after the conversion so that the conversion was done and then he says, listen, the principal was 1000 and the interest is 100 it's 1100 uh-uh. The fellow is now a Jew. He can collect the principal, not the interest, because he's become a brother now. And although the norm of the world is to collect and pay interest, not to a brother. However, vice versa, an idolater borrowed money from a Jew, interest-bearing, which is permissible. Again, the same scenario, a thousand, principal, a hundred, interest, eleven hundred. Even though the calculation and reckoning was made. After the conversion, he can only collect the principal, I'm sorry, he can collect the principal, and the interest. Why? Less people say, this fellow converted in order to save money. He doesn't want to pay interest, he converted and therefore, in order that people not say the conversion was done to save money on interest, he collects the money even after he converted. When he was, an idolater. Now the question is, you have a non-Jew, an idolater that's prepared to borrow money. You have $100,000. You have a non-Jew, an idolater, who comes and says, I'll take it. I'll pay you 10% interest. You have a Jew who comes and says, I need it. Lend me the $100,000. I'll pay you nothing because I'm not allowed to. Mitzvah, it is a mitzvah to get priority for making an interest-free loan to a Jew. free Over the loan to to an idolater. Even though you can say, hey, what's wrong? I need to make a living too. And the Torah permits me to make interest-bearing loans to my dollar. The whole world makes interest-bearing loans. It's a mitzvah to give a non-interest-bearing loan with that money to a Jew. And I think it's safe to say it's a tough mitzvah. Now, I want everyone to know, and I'm sure everyone knows, that we learned many of these laws earlier when we learned the laws of partnerships and what it means, iska, heter iska. Now, the heter iska we have today, we're going to talk about. But the iska we learned in the Rambam is that half is a loan, half is an investment. The loan is repaid without profit or loss. The investment is repaid with profit and loss as it happens. Still, the principal is obligated to have an advantage over this so he doesn't work for nothing. That's the principle that we learned up to now. Now, moving right along in these laws, we're going to learn parallel laws to what we learned earlier. Also, law that it is forbidden for a person to give his money. Here, we're learning a unique scenario, which we talked about earlier in the case of orphans, that in all likelihood there will be a profit and there will almost never be a loss. Well, in all likelihood there's going to be a profit and almost never be a loss. This seems to be the dust of Rebus, rabbinically prohibited Rebus, because there is no investment that is in all probability a profit and never a loss. So it seems to be more of a guaranteed investment. If somebody does this, he's called a Rosha. We learned earlier that if you do it for an orphan, our sages said it's okay. But in, under normal circumstances, it is not so okay. What if he did it? They split the reward, the profit and the loss, like the law of an isco we learned about earlier in the laws of partnership. Now there's another type of investment. Somebody sees that his fellow is trying to make money and he's a mitzvah boy. He invests his money with the guy. The guy says, listen, I'm afraid to take money from you. I don't, I don't have that good of a track record. He says, don't worry about it. He says, if you lose money, it'll be my loss. If you gain money, it'll be your gain. I'm just trying to help you. This is called a very pious person. The man's a tzaddik. Going back to what we learned earlier in the laws of Iska, which was covered in the laws of partners. You can't have a business, set up a storekeeper, and let him get half the profits. Because the question is, why is he getting half the profits? He shouldn't give money to buy fruit, produce, and not half the profits. This one, check. This one, off. Broken. The lay baits him and not eggs. Well, he should take us out on the game to have the chicken. Sit on the master's sofa for half the profits. Because the question is, why? What is the fellow doing that he should have to pay you half the profits? It sounds like an interest-bearing loan. 
We don't evaluate calves and young donkeys and have them fattened for half the profits. As we learned earlier in great detail, unless you pay the guy for the work so that the principal has to be paid extra. That's one option. Then you can do half the profits. Another alternative we learn is that the profit of the principal will be greater than the loss of the principal. So the profit will be two-thirds and the loss will be a third. As we explained at great length earlier, the laws of Shluchim and Shukfin chapter 8 are all about this, and we did cover it earlier. If somebody enters into a partnership arrangement with a friend, whether it's a partnership of money or a partnership of real estate, or he gives him something on Isco, which we learned earlier in the laws of partnership chapter 8, in the agreements, they should never mix the reward with the principal. Why? Because in a document, when you mix the reward or the profit with the principal, it sounds like interest. Shema because you don't know that there's really going to be profit. Maybe there won't be profit. So therefore, when you say I'm going to invest a thousand dollars and I'm going to take twelve hundred dollars, and if there is no profit, well, whoops, then it's interest bearing loan. He also should not give Iska money. Investment described earlier, a shootfish or partnership, and write them in the contract as a loan. What's the problem there? You know it's not a loan. I know it's not a loan. The problem is maybe the fellow will die. Now the estate, the heir is going to have the document. He's going to wrongfully collect interest. Therefore, it should be written for what it is. Now, we segue to some interesting laws. I know we're not allowed to pay or charge interest, but can you prepay the interest? How do you prepay the interest? You go to someone who you hope will lend you money and you give him a present. Also, it is forbidden to prepay the interest. Or, six months after the deal, you go and give the guy a present. Early payment of interest. Late payment of interest is still interest. Okay, so for example, he targets the guy as a good source of a loan. So he sends him presents. He sends him a gorgeous fruit basket. He sends him flowers. He sends him a Mercedes Benz. In order that he lend him. That's an example, an example of early payment of interest. Love on we borrowed from him, and gave him back his money, principal, that's kosher. And then he kept sending him gifts. Because of the money, that he had sitting in his possession for so long. This is a late payment of interest. At the time of payment, he didn't pay an interest, but a year later, he's giving him presents. And if he transgressed and did this, this would be a rabbinic prohibition called the dust of ribis, which we explained earlier. Furthermore, the Rambam will now explain that even verbal interest is forbidden from Jew to Jew. What is verbal interest? Somebody borrows money from his fellow. Up to that time, they never talked. He never would greet him. And now the guy lent him money. And suddenly he's all over him. Good morning. How are you? How was your night's sleep? Did you have good dreams? Also, he may not greet him because the whole greeting is interest. <laughs> he certainly can't praise him and say, Good morning, my terrific man. You are the nicest guy in the world. May I come and greet you at your house and walk you to the synagogue? As it says, our interest of everything. The word dovar means a thing. It also means a word. Words can also be interest, verbal interest. Even verbal interest is forbidden. You never said good morning to the guy, you ignore the guy. <laughs> so also he's a Torah scholar, all of a sudden he's teaching the guy Chomish. And Gemara all of a sudden he's teaching him Talmud. As long as the guy gave him an interest, long, suddenly he's a teacher. If he was a teacher before, go ahead, teach. But all of a sudden, any type of interest, even words, even Torah words. Somebody makes a loan to his fellow. He can't even say to him, Da, you should know, he's plain, he's plain, he's if so-and-so guest will come from Montana, you didn't know the Rambam was in Montana. Claim our meaning. If so-and-so comes from Montana, you should honor him. And feed him. And give him drink. As is appropriate. Or anything similar. You can't even tell the borrower that in case this and his guest come from Montana, be good to him. Now, commentaries say, what does the Rambam mean here? This is not interest of words. This is interest of money. You're telling the guy, if my friend from Montana comes, feed him. No, the guy was going to feed him anyway. But he's just encouraging him to feed him. That's interest of words. There are certain situations which look like interest, but they're really not. And therefore, they are permitted. Ketzad, for example. A person can buy promissory notes from someone else at a discount. Buying promissory notes at a discount, even if they are the guy's own notes. So, for example, you buy a promissory note for $100 from the guy, you pay him 90 It's a six-month note, and in six months you collect 100 That sounds like interest. But it's not. It's a promissory note. She's not concerned. 
When we look at laws, for example, in our days, you take a post-dated check from somebody. Why? So the commentaries explain, because you risk the fact that the check will be bad. And therefore, it's a risk. However, if the guy guarantees that the check will be good, then that's forbidden, and that's an interest-bearing law. Now, next scenario. Mr. A could give Mr. B a dinner, a shiny quarter, or a dollar, in order that he should lend Mr. C a hundred dinners. Mr. A is giving a gift to Mr. B to lend Mr. C a hundred dinners. That's permissible, because that's not interest. Different people. The guy who's paying is not the guy that's getting. For example, I can give Daniel money that he should lend money to Felix. I give him a quarter to lend him a dollar. There's no interest here. Shall we also tell you that the Torah only forbids, only forbids interest coming from a borrower to lender? Here there's a third party involved. No problem. Similarly speaking, one person can say to another, Hey, love dinners, I take this dinner. Then there, the plaintiff, do me a favor, go put in a good word for me. From Mr. B, that you should lend me money. I'm paying you a dinner for the good word. Commentary say, even if it's the guy's son that you're giving the dinner to. People have a soft spot for their own son. So my son comes to me and says, Do me a favor, lend this guy money. <laughs> Little did I know you paid my son to say that. Hey, you know, business is business. The reward here, the payment is to say. It's a payment for words, not a payment for money. There are actions which would actually theoretically be permissible. We also however, they are forbidden because it's a circumvention. You're beating the system of Rebus. And in, in general, we know in law, circumvention is forbidden. Ketzad, for example. Oh, Marley, one person says to the other, Haldani, Mona, lend me $100. Mr. A says to Mr. B, lend me $100. I need $100 or $100,000. Oh, Marley, Mr. B says, I'll tell you the truth, my dear friend. Mona, Ainley, I don't have $100. But Chitim, actually, Mona, I have $100 worth of wheat. I can lend you $100 worth of wheat. What do you say? He says, as they say in Russian, Pujalska, good. He gives him $100 worth of wheat. So what's the problem? So far, no problem. But the plot thickens. The fellow then buys the wheat back, paying him 90. He just bought $100 a wheat for $90. There's no law against me selling $100 a wheat for $90. That he said, need discount. Give a discount. Now, there's still an obligation of a loan of $100, because the original loan was $100 worth of wheat. What was really given was 90 but it was done with a whole spiel. This would technically be permissible. Our sages forbade it. Because it's circumventing, it's a whole system, just to beat the system. The fact is that he made him a $90 loan, but he's going to be getting 100 back. So although technically permissible, in spirit forbidden. All that also because what if he did it? The fact is he can collect 100 because it's legal. There isn't even a bit of transgression here. Another example. If someone had a field, that's given to him as security. The guy received a field for security. And this scenario will be discussed in greater detail at the end of chapter 6. The next chapter and at the beginning of chapter 7. So they shouldn't turn around. And rent it to the owner of the field, because that's another way of beating the system, as we will explain. The guy remains in his field, and he gets rent every month because of the money that he lent him, beating the system. It is forbidden to rent out or to hire out. Instead of speaking of a loan, the person giving the money and the recipients speak of hiring the coins as one hires all the utensils. I can hire your cow, right? I can hire your plow. Let me hire your dinner. I'm going to hire your money. Well, hiring money is like borrowing money. You can't beat the system. Because when you hire money, you're actually doing an interest bearing law. Since a loan is not involved, the, contract, the concept of interest according to scriptural law does not apply. So, it's not like renting a utensil. Where the utensil itself comes back. You rent a plow, you give back a plow. But here, he obviously is hiring, quote unquote. He's renting the dinars to spend them. He's not doing them to keep them on his table. Or maybe dinar machedes, when he's going to repay them, he's going to bring dinars, other ones. You may have beat the system, but it's a rabbinic prohibition and transmission of ribis. Closing paragraph of this chapter, Yudzayin 17. Melech, a king. We think the IRS is tough, huh? There was a king, Shayudin, of his laws war, which was very common back then. There was a head tax, a poll tax. Everybody had to pay head tax. You didn't pay head tax, no problem. Anybody who pays it for you, you become a slave or his serf. Every person who pays the tax because of someone, Shalayin Nasan, who did not pay, the guy becomes his serf. So that's a good way of getting a serf. You pay his poll tax. How much did he give altogether? The guy's poll tax was a dinner, but the guy was poor as a synagogue mouse. He didn't have a dinner. He now owns the guy as a servant. He's now his serf. How much utilization does he get from this guy? A million dollars. And he just uses him and uses him and uses him. He got a good deal. 
Technically, this is permissible because the law of the king is a law. And it's not a loan. Anything similar. End of chapter 5. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchah is the laws of Malva, lender, Velova, and borrower, Perek Shishi, chapter 6. And we're learning the laws relating to the prohibition of paying and charging interest and the various types of prohibitions, biblical prohibitions called Ribis Kitsutsa, set interest, rabbinic prohibitions called Avak, Ribis, the dust or secondary forms of prohibition of interest paying. And then there is the completely permissible, and these are various concepts we're discussing here. Perek Shishi, chapter 6, Aleph 1. What if somebody lends someone a sela and the condition he takes out during the loan is he's going to give him back instead of four dinarim, which is what a sela is, he's going to give him back five. An extra dinar. A or sasayim chitim, he's going to give him two measures of wheat, visholish, and he's going to expect him to return three. A sela besela usa, or he's going to give him a sela and expect to get back a sela plus a saw. A sholish sin visholish sin vidinar, or he's going to give him three measures, three saw, and expect to get back three saw plus a dinar. Klolish sheldobar, bottom line, the general principle here, kol halvo, any type of loan. Which has to come back with the addition of kosher who have anything and the amount is irrelevant. This is Torah, biblical prohibition of interest because you're taking more than you're giving and the deal is set at the outset and that violates it all. And because it is a biblical prohibition of interest, the Yates Abidayonim, it can actually be litigated and it can be forced by the courts to be returned. We learned this earlier that if it's biblically prohibited interest, the courts could and should force its return. If it's rabbinic interest called Avakribits, then the courts do not get involved in forcing its payment or its return. So here, this is a biblical prohibition. You can't expect to give somebody two measures and get back three. That's a, that's a biblical violation of Rebus. Now we come to a similar scenario. and so also, if somebody offers a loan, makes a loan to his fellow, so he says, I'm going to give you $1,000. As a loan, I'm going to lend you $1,000. And he made an agreement with him. He took out a condition. You could live in my courtyard, he says to the borrower, without paying rent until I give you back this loan. This is a problem because the borrower is living rent-free. I'm sorry, the lender is living rent-free in the borrower's courtyard. Or he rented him the courtyard at a discount. Not only did he rent him the courtyard at a discount, because nobody's violating any law if you rent somebody something at a discount, but because of Adobe, but he specified, why am I renting it to you with a discount? Why is the lender receiving a discount? Because he's giving him a discount until the loan is returned. Or he gave him a place where his produce is at the time of the loan, and he can make use of that place. He gave him a mashkin, collateral, of his courtyard. He says, listen, you lend me $1,000, and the intern can live in my courtyard and make use of it until I give you back the $1,000. Once he gives him back the $1,000, all of the time he spent living in his courtyard is interest. So all the above scenarios, this is a Torah severity level of interest, because it's money given, money returned, benefit obtained, spelled out in the beginning. It didn't just happen. It was planned. Because this is a biblical violation of the interest law, it could actually be forced to be returned in the courts. So that's one scenario. Uh, these list of stories, of, of, of scenario, is one category of scenario. It's all forbidden. Now comes a different type of scenario. We learned extensively earlier the concept of asmachta. Asmachta is, when I was a kid in yeshiva, they used to translate asmachta as a bet. What is the problem with betting? Why do we say that people who bet cannot be witnesses? The other one, Jack. Why do we say people who bet cannot be kosher witnesses? Because nobody who bets a million dollars believes he's going to lose it. The guy who bets always bets believing he's going to win. So if he loses, he never really conveyed the million dollars or the hundred dollars. He feels it was robbed from him. And therefore, when you don't convey something, you're not giving it. So here, if somebody sells a field, a chotzer or a courtyard, be asmachto, using the system of asmachto. He says here in the note, as explained in the laws of selling, chapter 11, which describes an asmachto when a stipulation is not confirmed by opinion, so that the conveyance was not done, and or it is apparent that one of the principals never made a hard and fast commitment to the transaction involved. Nobody meant to give it. Hail being that he never acquired the body of the object. 
Then all of the produce he consumed, he consumed will be considered interest. And he has to return them. Why? Because when one person conveys his field to the other by asmachta, he didn't really convey it. And then the, all the years he spent consuming the produce, when he's going to give the item back, it's going to be the return of a loan. So the produce is interest. The same law applies. Anyone who did not make a real conveyance has to return the produce because if he consumed produce, this would be biblical ribis. So that is clear. Other than the above scenarios, anything prohibited because of the ribis law, the interest law, is a rabbinic type of violation of interest. What is the spirit of the rabbinic prohibition of interest? It is a rabbinic decree. That by becoming accustomed to paying this type of rabbinically prohibited interest, one will be led to Torah prohibited interest. The language, the verbiage for that, this is called avak ribis, the dust of ribis, just as the difference between soil and dust is that soil is substantial. And dust is dust. Biblical ribis is clear ribis. Rabbinic ribis is not. It's just dust. And as we learned earlier, he repeats, if somebody feels that he paid rabbinically prohibited ribis, the courts cannot reverse it, will not reverse it. Now come some more scenarios discussed in the Gemara. If somebody makes a loan, Mr. A makes a loan to Mr. B. Very nice of him. He cannot take the borrower's servant and take him and work with him for the day, have the guy's servant work for him for the day. Why? Because the servant is doing nothing anyway. The borrower, who is the boss, who is the owner of the servant, is not utilizing that servant. So what do you lose when I work with your servant for the day? The answer is nothing. But still, it is not appropriate. For the lender to benefit from the servant of the borrower, because that is a rabbinic violation of interest. Even though you could say, what is he already taking? It should fall into the principle of one benefits and one does not lose. Another example. He should not live. The lender should not live in the courtyard of the borrower without rent, because it's benefiting from the borrower. Even though this type of courtyard could never get any rent. It's not rentable. You can't, the guy's not losing any money. And the guy who owns the courtyard never rents it, so there's no real loss here, and there's no real gain here. Still, this is forbidden. And if he did dwell there without pay, the lender has to pay the borrower rent. Why? Because he benefited from him. And if he's not paying him rent, this would be rabbinically prohibited interest, the dust of interest. Why is it not major biblical interest? Because it was not clearly arranged and stipulated to begin with. Because if it was, then it would be biblically forbidden. This just happened. That's why it's a rabbinic violation. If he did not yet return his debt, he still owes him the money. When it comes to deduct, the payment of rent from the courtyard which he enjoyed, if it comes out that the rent that perhaps should have been paid is equal pasqual with the debt, he doesn't have to deduct the whole thing, but whatever the judges decide. Because if you make the guy not have to pay him back anything, for example, he borrowed $100, and he lived in his courtyard, the lender lived in the borrower's courtyard for free, a value of $10 a year. He lived there for 10 years. At the end of the 10 years, he says, okay, $10 a year, $100, I owe you nothing. That would be tantamount, equivalent to the courts forcing him to return the interest. And that's not what we do with rabbinic violation. That would be as if the courts force it out and Abakribis doesn't have the courts force it out. The courts do not force the rabbinic violation of interest payment to be reversed. Now comes a situation in three. The Rambam says, my teachers ruled. Usually when the Rambam talks about his teachers, he's talking about the Ri, Rabbi Yosef Migash. Sometimes also his teacher's teacher, the Rif. That if somebody makes a loan to his fellow, and after a time, the lender comes to the borrower and says to the borrower, No, no, it's time to pay back. I lent you $1,000. That was three years ago. No. So the borrower says to him, I'll tell you what, I don't have the money to repay you. But you can live in my courtyard until I pay you back your obligation. Now, this was not a stipulation that was made to begin with. This was a ninth inning deal. This is also called the dust of Rebus, or a mere rabbinic violation. Why? Because the interest was not stipulated at the time of the loan. When the Torah prohibits interest paying, it says, Don't give it to him for interest. At the moment of giving, you need a stipulation. This was an after-the-fact stipulation. 
Now the next scenario, if one person lends a colleague money and gives him a field as security, told him, listen, my friend, if you don't return the money from now for a full three years, I give you three years to return the money. In the interim, I have the field. I take ownership of the field. You have three years to repay the money, otherwise the field is mine. This is never acquired. Why? This is a classical example of asmachta. Because it's a, an asmachta nobody ever believes. He's not going to repay it. Let the guy keep his field. It's just not something you believe. So you never convey the field. So therefore, because it's going to go back, he deducts all the produce. Because it's actually biblical readers. Because he was, he borrowed the money, he has to repay the money, and he used the produce. But if the seller told him a different verbiage, different language, he says, If I don't repay you, the principal in within three years, I want you to retroactively acquire this field. Retroactive is a whole different world we learned. And he brought it to him within three years. He doesn't get any produce at all. If he brought it after three years, then the buyer gets all of the produce because retroactive kicks in retroactively. Hey, If somebody sells a house, a sod or a field, and the seller said to the buyer, Listen, and this is quite common. Do me a favor. I have to sell you my land because I really needed the money. But I want you to understand that when I have money, you let me buy back the field, right? This is not an acquisition. It's a loan. And all the produce that he consumed is biblical ribis. can be forcibly removed by the courts. But if the buyer said, willingly, tell me, when you have money on the outs of the Chalkar, I'm willing to give this back to you, he volunteered it, that would be permissible. It was not a condition. And the buyer could eat produce until he gives it back the money. Vov, six. What if Mr. A sold Mr. B the field? He sold him a field, 100 acres for $100. And also, he only gave him part of it. If the seller says to the buyer, you only paid me $60 for 100 acres, you still owe me 40 I'll tell you what, why don't you buy 60? Buy 60 acres. And each of them could have produce according to the amount of the money. This one's 60, this one's 40. When you bring the balance of the 40, you can acquire it retroactively. Then, because of that deal, they're both forbidden to eat the produce immediately. Because it's going to, in time, be clear that it's interest. Perhaps the buyer will bring the balance of the money. So it turns out retroactively to be the buyer's field. So the seller was eating of the produce because of the money that the buyer owed him. That's interest. So the buyer is forbidden. Perhaps he'll never bring. So he ate produce because of the money that he had by the seller. Either way, it's interest. Therefore, what is the best way to deal with this? We leave the produce. We deposit it into the hands of a third party. Until time will tell what belongs to whom, and will place it in the proper place. When you bring the balance of the money, you will acquire. In that case, the seller can eat the produce until the buyer brings it. The buyer eats it. It's interest. It's even better when we remove it. The rest of the money will be a debt. In that case, the buyer could eat the produce. But if the seller did, then you can forcibly remove everything he consumed. And now the Rambam closes with the last two paragraphs. My teachers ruled. Again, referring to that if somebody lends something to his fellow, he lends money to his friend, gives him his field as collateral, giving him permission to enjoy the produce. All the days of the collateral. So that if the loan is a 10-year loan, the guy gets to enjoy 10, year collateral, 10 years collateral. Even though he does not deduct anything for the value of the consumption of the produce of the collateral, this is only the dust of ribis, it's only rabbinically prohibited, and because it's not biblically prohibited, the courts cannot force the reversal of it. Now, why not? It appears that this is a clear violation of the interest law. Somebody lends money to somebody, gives him collateral, allows him to have the produce, and he has to get back 100% of the loan. Sure sounds like biblical interest to me. So here the Rambam says this fantastic concept. Because we're talking about a field, not a house, and not a courtyard. Because somebody who takes a field or gives a field for collateral, it's not the same as a house. Why? Because in the case of taking a field as collateral, a field has no produce at the moment of the loan. At the moment that the loan is made, the field is a field. You have to plow it. You have to plant it. You have to irrigate it. Who knows? 
perhaps the borrower will do well. I'm sorry, perhaps the, the, the lender will do well, and there's going to be produce there. Or the Efshir Shiyapsid, perhaps he's going to invest a ton of money, a ton of labor, and it's going to produce nothing. Because there's no guarantee that fields will produce. You have to really know what you're doing, and then you need blessing. Or luck. You can have a good year and a firestone year. Fico, therefore, he avakribis. This is considered a rabbinic violation because of the uncertainty of will there ever be any produce. Therefore, it's not considered clear, stipulated interest. It may never happen. So this is the chidush. This is the contribution here. that The Rambam says his teacher is made that because it is a field, it may never give produce. And similarly speaking, one could argue that perhaps the collateral should be similar to an asmachta where there's no reliance. As we talked earlier, somebody sells using the idea of asmachta. He never means to convey it. However, someone who gives the collateral does convey it. So it's not an asmachta either. And that's what it appears that the Talmud suggests in that section. That the scenario we painted now is avakribis, is the dust or a rabbinic violation of the interest law. However, this whole deal only works with a field. As I'm just explained, it's only a field that may or may not make money. A house or a courtyard certainly gains money because there's a clear value. Nothing has to grow. As my teachers ruled. So now the Rambam says, in wrapping it up, so we learn, in fact, there are three types of collateral. One is mashkena, the type of collateral, which is a set, pre-stipulated amount of interest, meaning that collateral is given, agreed upon is the fact that he will benefit from the collateral and still have to give back 100% of the money. That's a clear violation of Torah law. Or mashkena shiavak ribis, then there is collateral, which only is a violation of the dust of ribis, rabbinic interest law, and then there is mashkena, the type of collateral deal, shehimu teres, which is 100% permissible. Ketzad, now the Rambam spells it out. He gives him as collateral a place where there's always ample use for produce or for practical usage. Like a courtyard, there's always use for a courtyard, or a bathhouse. Or a store. He also paid a save, and in fact, he enjoyed the produce. This is a biblical, predetermined case of interest, biblically forbidden. Mishkan Soda, if the collateral was a field, we said earlier, we never know what the field is going to produce. Or Kayetzev or anything similar. Although Sean Peters and produce did come. Machon and he ate them, being that there was no clarity. This is only a rabbinic violation. Also, if he gave him his courtyard, but they agreed to deduct value. This is only the dust of Rebus, rabbinic violation. Mishkan Sodeo Benikwe, what if he clearly gave in his field and said, all the produce you enjoy deduct from the principle of the loan year by year? This is clearly permissible from moment one. What's the scenario? The Rambam paints the following scenario. The lender lent the borrower a hundred dinars. Again, collateral of his courtyard or his field. The lender said to him, Listen, my friend, I'm going to deduct a more of silver for every year as a payment for this land. In order that I should be able to keep the produce. In a courtyard, also it's forbidden. As we learned earlier, but in a field where we're not really sure it will produce. It is permissible. Has the closing paragraph. Some of the Gaonim have ruled. This is the reef. The Rambam's teacher's teacher, any type of collateral, which is not done with a system of deduction, where you don't deduct year by year the value of the, of the produce, this is a predetermined and therefore forbidden biblical form of interest. That's their ruling. Now he says, what they did not do is differentiate in the depth of the idea by going into the profundity of the difference between a field which will not necessarily kick off produce and a courtyard which always has value. Because of that, they struggled. That's why they struggled with the words of the scholars and sages of the Talmud. We talked earlier and he brings them down here in the notes of the Moiznaim Rambam and other places, that in the Gemara, the words of Rabbina contradict the concept mentioned earlier. Because they did not differentiate between a field and a courtyard, therefore the words of Rabbina and the Gemara were problematic. And they ruled, any form of collateral, even with an agreement of deduction, of enjoyment of produce, also is forbidden, whether a courtyard, which has a certain value of rent per year, or a field, which according to them also has a certain value per year, and in their situation, the only permissible form of security is as follows. Ketzad, for example, he lent him a hundred dinars. Or Mishkan lent lay behind bias. I saw that for this loan of a hundred dinars, he gave him collateral of a house or a field. The Ishmael made the agreement was Shachad. That's a shrine that after ten years, the 
property reverts back to the owner without money because it's deduction. In this case, he can enjoy the produce of the collateral for 10 years. Even if the rent was much greater than, I guess, the 10 dinars a year. He's giving a scenario here of even 1,000 dinars. Why is that? So he talks about something we actually go into later. This would be similar to Mr. A, who rented property to Mr. B. The property was worth $1,000 a year, and he rented it to him for 500 a year. Why? Why not? I'm allowed to give you a reduction on rent. So also in the scenario, if the owner of the field agreed, whenever he brings the return of loan money, he'll credit him 10 a year, which is the original number, and he'll just remove the obligation. That's certainly permissible. So also if the borrower agrees, anytime he wants to, he calculates the value of living there, or utilizing it, he's going to give him back the rest of the money, he's going to walk away. That's another form of permissibility. This is permissible. This would be tantamount to rent. And we learned earlier, any deal made between the owner and the renter is acceptable because it's business. Any deal made in renting, is permissible, as we explained earlier, end of chapter 6.